0: Welcome to ScriptLock, where we talk about storytelling in video games. I'm Nick Folkman. And I'm Max Folkman. Today's guests are Ashley Birch and Kate Dollarhide. Ashley is an actress, writer, and singer. She's acted in such games as Borderlands 2, Mortal Kombat X, Life is Strange, Horizon Zero Dawn, and she's written for Rocket Jump, Adventure Time, Hey Ash What You Been Playing, and Glitch Tex. Kate is a writer of speculative fiction, with her stories appearing in Beneath Seathless Skies, Gamut, and Lamplight. She's currently the co-editor-in-chief of the online magazine Strange Horizons, and a narrative designer at Obsidian Entertainment, working on Pillars of Eternity 2, Deadfire. Thank you two for coming on today.
1: Yeah, hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me.
0: So, Kate, we'll start with you. What's your background in writing?
2: Um. So I started writing pretty late. I was in my mid-twenties uh, in grad school, actually, for a totally different thing. And I was super stressed out. And... Um, kind of having a tough time so i started writing a lot of fan fiction and uh i got a pretty good response from that and decided to get into uh, original fiction at the time i was playing a lot of games uh so i thought like maybe i can make this thing i love a career and i started writing more original fiction too, with the goal of getting into games
0: two questions what was a totally different thing that you were in school for originally and then what was the fan fiction you were writing (laughs)
2: <laughs> um, I was in school for museum studies. I have a bachelor's degree in anthropology and now an MA in museum studies, and I don't work in museums at all. <laughs> um, and then I was writing uh, mm, Dragon Age fan fiction. Awesome. Yeah. It's it's really funny. Um, I wrote a fan game for Dragon Age, Twine that um, – I used to apply to a job there, and I didn't get it because I did not they weren't hiring Americans. But uh, Patrick Weeks was like, hey, this is really good. You should take the game writing thing seriously. Um, so that was sort of my first boost up, really.
0: Cool. Yeah, I would love to have that when I was starting out. <laughs> Has your museum studies work helped your writing at all?
2: Uh, you know, not really, except for giving me a background in... Um, different historical eras and physical culture and stuff like that. It's given me a lot of skills, uh, in research. So I know how to get the information that I want, which is very helpful.
0: Do you have any hot research tips? Cause I could use some, <laughs>
2: um, especially when you're working with historical stuff or languages, just email professors or email departments, because hmm. usually they are really eager to talk to anyone who doesn't work in the Academy.
0: Why are they eager to not talk to you in the Academy? <laughs>
2: um, I feel like it's because the they feel like the public doesn't care about their work so much. So if you're just a random person who uh, emails them to say like, hey, I'm really interested in the work that you specifically do. Can you tell me about it? Most people think that's cool.
0: I know there's a thing mostly for like film industry writers, but there is, it's a, I forgot what it's called, but it's a database website where it's all these consultants and scientists and like professors who are there to answer questions to writers to help them make their scripts better.
2: Oh man, that's cool.
0: And I would... I need to make this a bigger thing for the games industry to help them out. Of course, I can't remember what it's called. You'll find it put in the show notes. I will. There. Yeah. Yes. Um, and how did you get into writing for games professionally?
2: I started out doing um, freelance work for mobile games, actually. I wrote a, um, I did a game jam with my friend Mari, who ended up working at Ubisoft now. She's on Far Cry 5. Um, we did a game jam together. It was the I Love You Jam. It's like a month-long dating sim jam. Uh, and we put that up on itch.io and a mobile company contacted me and they were like, Hey, we really like this game you wrote. Do you want to write a romance game for us? That's like based in texts, um, SMS messages. Oh. So, um, I was like, yeah, sure. And that was my first pain gig in games.
0: Awesome. And how'd you get to uh, Obsidian? Uh,
2: that was kind of a winding journey. Um, so I've been working there for three months, this was the third time I applied for a job at Obsidian. The first time was a couple of years ago and they were like, Hey, you have promised, but you're not quite there yet. Come back to us later. Um, a year after that, I applied again and um, they told me like, Hey, we like this a lot, but we decided that we need a senior writer and not um, a junior writer. So we'll keep your resume on file and get back to you. And I thought that would mean like, we're going to throw your resume away. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in March of this year, I got laid off from my job. I was working in solar, um, solar sales, and they were like, "Hey, we need a writer for Pillars of Eternity: Deadfire. Do you want to apply?" And I did, and it worked out. Wow. Yeah, I feel like it's a story that doesn't it doesn't happen a lot that people seek you
1: for those kind of jobs. I feel like most writing stories don't happen a lot. Yeah, that's a really
2: good point. There is no one way into games.
1: Yeah.
0: I always assumed that whenever companies say, yeah, yeah we'll keep your resume on file, that it's just a nice way of them saying, no, we're never going to... Right,
2: yeah, totally. Down. That's absolutely what I thought.
0: I know we've applied to Obsidian, too, and they never even got back to us about those applications.
2: <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I think when they have an open call on the website, they just get totally swamped. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I. Oh, I should say, I know... Um, one of the artists on Pillars of Eternity. So I had someone advocating on my behalf within the company. So like, God, I think it was on Twitter. I saw someone say that the games industry runs on 100% pure unleaded nepotism, which (laughs) I think is absolutely the case. Um, But you also have to be good at the thing you're applying for. It just, you also probably need to know someone.
0: Yeah. And I would understand like if I was hiring, I'd rather want someone who could be vouched for than someone totally unknown because that just makes the job makes the whole hiring process easier
2: right, yeah, totally, and I'd been acquainted with Carrie through um my work in speculative fiction, like not games at all, um mm. just science fiction stuff, so that's how I got in
0: Ashley, how did you break into games
1: um I not through fan fiction, though I did write fan fiction when I was a kid, so that's probably of fan like fiction? my earliest um Final Fantasy seven specifically. Okay. I think I did some Harvest Moon sixty four. Oh wow! Uh, Where'd you post
0: these?
1: You'll never know. <laughs> My dead body. Um, and I think I did some Batman Beyond stuff. There's a whole stint Sailor Moon. There's a whole stint of that's basically what I did when I was a kid. Aside from fiction, um, but ultimately the the um, the project that all roads led from was hey ash whatcha plan which is a um web series i did with my brother we started doing it in i think 2008 and uh we started doing it so that anthony could learn originally my my brother uh, um, anthony who is also a games writer he's working at riot right now and he wrote borderlands 2 previously um he had aspirations to make an indie game documentary at one point so he wanted to do these comedy shorts so he could learn how to use the equipment. Um, but then it ended up being <laughs> popular enough that it led to other opportunities for both of us. Me primarily initially in voice acting and him, uh, he got the combination of him writing it Destructoid and writing uh, and producing Hey Ash... Um, got him the job at Gearbox To write Borderlands 2 So that was my It feels weird to call it professional Because it was um, very 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 far from Professional in terms of the production of it But um, that was the first Gig I had Writing for a thing that people would actually See not you know whatever Five people on fanfiction.net Reading my Final Fantasy uh, <laughs> Fanfiction So it all kind of started With, with Hey Ash
0: and so, your earliest writing is fan fiction. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So then, what is your writing process like now? Is it similar? Is it the same as when you were writing fan fiction?
1: Uh, no. <laughs> God, I would. That would be really depressing if I had the same process as when I was eleven. Um, it kind of varies, honestly, depending on the project. Like writing at Nickelodeon now, um, the process is pretty um, structured. So. Because you sort of have to get executive approval at every stage. So um, I will have a premise idea for an episode. So I'll write a premise. I will get that approved or not. And then it'll move on to usually an outline stage and then for a second, third draft. Because the show I'm working on is um, script-driven. And most animated – not most. Some animated shows are um, board-driven, which means that you just write an outline And then the board artists write all of the dialogue and stuff. That's actually how we worked on Adventure Time. So in the writer's room for Adventure Time, there were four of us. And we would break down um, the story into a three-act structure um, and just sort of outline it. Um, And then that would go to a board artist who would fill it with dialogue and actually make it an an actual episode of television. Um, And then for Hey Ash... um, We don't write as much for Hayash, but now what we'll generally do is... um, We'll try to think of a... We'll probably start with a game or uh, a cultural concept, like, you know, something that's been happening in the industry, and then we'll uh, try to find a funny idea around that. But yeah, it's kind of... It kind of varies depending on the medium, which I guess it would. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and then I've also found writing my own stuff well the main thing that i have found in general is that um it kind of feels like you're solving a puzzle particularly the nickelodeon show that i'm writing for and the thing that i found in my own writing is that much like when you're completing an actual jigsaw puzzle you might have a section that you're working on that you that you kind of put aside and then you move to another part of the puzzle and then you find later that they connect Mm. um so I found that's kind of helpful sometimes working on my own stuff is to write scenes or to just kind of try to get character voices down by putting things on the page. So I'm not necessarily as like, at least not initially when I'm first starting, I'm not as um, stringent about like, this is my outline. And then I f- followed the outline because it's kind of when you're still trying to figure out what the fuck you're writing.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, it's kind of hard to just go straight to like beating out uh, the narrative, the narrative points.
0: I know the thing we're doing right now with our work is we usually, like, after we outline, when we're going into, like, a first draft phase, is, like, all right, here's the structure of the scene. Here's all this dialogue where, like, the dialogue is literally, I'm talking about this. you're I'm responding with this. And it's, like, so I see what this looks like lengthwise, how it feels. And then we'll do, like, my actual dialogue pass next time. Might come through mm-hmm. again I see everything links up. Just for, like, pacing and seeing that everything slows down that much and at least it flows well or mm-hmm. seems to flow well.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I think people have all different types of approaches to that kind of thing. And what I'm sort of starting to realize or or kind of settling on is that whatever gets you to actually write is the yeah. thing you should probably do. So if you find yourself like daunted, that's kind of what I've been sort of trying to figure out for my own work cuz self-motivating is much different than um Oh yes. working for a company where you have a deadline and you know you'll you'll screw other people over if you don't get it in, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um so I found that I can get I, – I very much want to know – I'm very detail-oriented, especially when it comes to storytelling, and so I'll want to know exactly where I'm headed, but that will be so daunting – That if I don't have the entire thing cracked before I even get down on the page, then I will not write. So I'm trying to be a little bit looser about that process and find like, okay, if I just write a scene so I can figure out the tone of it, maybe even, and I can throw it out later. But at least I'll like have put something on the page rather than just like being imprisoned in my own mind.
0: Yeah, exactly. Or how do you think your acting has influenced your writing process?
1: It definitely... It's interesting, actually, because... I think I've always been most interested in... or When I was starting to write fan fiction, I would basically write completely unstructured scripts. I would just, like... I remember my early Sailor Moon fan fiction, there was no description even. It was just dialogue back and forth. So I've always been, you know, very specific about dialogue and dialogue-focused. And being an actor and and having to say... (laughs) lines of dialogue out loud all the time. Um, And particularly in video games where sometimes you're delivering quite a bit of like, depending on your role, you might be delivering quite a bit of expositional information. You become way more cognizant of how to make things sound naturalistic and how to be informational without being overbearing in your language. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on the other side of it, it's actually, I think, being a writer. And then other, you know... I've done very, very little directing. But what little directing I've done um, has also informed this. But especially with my writing experience, it makes you more aware of your place in the larger scheme of the project. So I find myself thinking about the project as a whole and less just about my part of it. And I find myself wanting to, like, thinking about serving um when i'm acting thinking about serving the larger story in a way that isn't even just from an acting perspective but also from a writing perspective it's a weird split brain thing that can happen sometimes but it it helps me interpret scripts and also um think about like the idea of having you know of character arcs or you know what the narrative what the narrative arc is for a character i think about it in terms of being an actor and a writer um in both cases Um, but I think, yeah, it just makes you, it also, because acting is character study primarily, it makes you much more conscious of, um, character psychology. So if my biggest pet peeve in, uh, television that I watch in particular, I've like stopped watching shows for this reason is when I find that in an episode, there's a major emotional thing that happens and then there's no continuity for the next episode. Two characters could get in like a, you know, relationship ending argument and then, the next episode because it's not about them. They're like in the background having, you know, (laughs) having dinner and being fine or whatever. So that kind of stuff really, really bothers me because as an actor, you have to think about the psychology of your character and the consistency that of which they behave based on their psychology. And so that is a major concern for me when I'm writing is, does this, is this consistent with the character that has been established? Um, How do I, create story and motivation through that psychology and motivated by that psychology. Um,
0: like emotional continuity.
1: Emotional continuity. Yeah. Which is why, yeah. Any show that like, sir, that favors mystery or surprise or whatever over character, I get like really annoyed by. A lot of people do. Do they? <laughs> <I feel> like, <laughs> I'm so bitter. <laughs> I feel like
0: at least subconsciously people, they won't realize like, Oh yeah, that's why I don't like this show if they say, like, no, it's because of this reason or whatever. Right. Why a lot of shows came out after Lost didn't do well, because they weren't... They were all only mystery. Yeah, they like... weren't as character-centric as Lost was.
1: Right, mm-hmm.
0: Which Lost had its problems, but at least they...
1: They did have some interesting character
0: Yeah, pieces, for sure. When you're writing, do you act out the dialogue when you're going through things again?
1: Surprisingly, no. I do sometimes, but um, I actually find that I don't need to I mean that's arguable I suppose if you, <laughs> if you, if you see an episode of something i written and you hate the dialogue then maybe I do need to do it but no I, I guess I I'm now it's interesting because I think all of them feed into each other but having I have friends that are directors and having done a little bit of directing I kind of just think about it and I just sort of do the thing where you edit the, the movie, the show the whatever in your head yeah. And I kind of play out the scene in my head. Um, so I'm thinking about how the dialogue would be performed, but I'm not doing it out loud. I'm not sure why I don't have the impulse to speak it out loud, actually, because I know that's helpful. Yeah. Um, but for some reason, I just never have that
0: impulse. I just ask because writers often talk about how they don't realize problems they have with their script until they say it out loud. And then I didn't know if actors, if they do that or not, and if they're, like, they're already good enough that they've acted so much that, oh, they've already, they act it when they're writing it.
1: I guess maybe that's what it feels like. If I if I find I I'm probably too precious about dialogue like the the way that you described your process. I feel like I think that's a much smarter way of approaching it. And for me, I think I would be like, but I need to know if there's a what the joke is going to be here and like I just like I like need to see it through dialogue almost. And it's been interesting especially writing for um children's TV because you can't I realized that dialogue was has been my crutch for a long time. Um and thinking visually and imagining things visually and expressing things visually was something that I really had to learn. Because especially if you're writing like like Hayash is all dialogue, humor, fast editing sketch comedy type stuff. And so a big learning curve for me when I started writing for Uh, rocket jump and then especially now at nickelodeon is um that i can't just spend all my time making the dialogue pitch perfect it has to be you know so it could be that that's my i don't i don't need to read it out loud or whatever because that's that is the thing that i've always led with and the difficult thing for me has been especially with this nickelodeon show it's like kids like visual humor, <laughs> you know, they like, they like things that they can see. So if you write a really clever line of dialogue, they're not going to give a shit because they're children <laughs> they're eight years old. So, um,
0: at least you've acknowledged that you actually are trying to work on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm glad that I have, uh, um, I'm glad that I have enough experience and emphasis on dialogue because I think it's, it's very, very distracting when it's bad. And it could be just because I, I have such a, obsession with it but yeah i definitely that is not the thing that i worry about as much i have a lot of other stuff i need to work on as a writer
0: uh kate what's your writing process like uh for games or for original fiction both because i want to hear how they contrast or are similar
2: um games is a little different the way it at least the way it works at obsidian is that um we sort of work in concert with an area designer or a quest designer where they'll put together a quest um and they'll like map out the beats in our tool set. So that will, it's like, it's a lot like twine, but much more robust visually. Um, so we'll have nodes and they'll just write a summary of like, this needs to happen in this node and this needs to happen in this node. Um, so I will look at the structure of what the, um, area designer has given me and say like, Oh, you know, I think we need some more explanation here or we can definitely trim this over here. Um, and then I basically go in and like fill in the blanks. Um,
1: it's do they give you, um, like, we want this type of character? Or like, how much information do they give you?
2: It really varies by, um, by designer. Some of them will be like, I want this guy to be like a, a real badass pirate. And I'll be like, okay, I can write a badass pirate. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's very collaborative, which I really enjoy. Um, and I've been lucky that everyone that I've worked with has been, like, really cool about that aspect of the writing process. Um, but for my personal games, it's much more f- free-flowing, I guess. Um, I like to sketch on paper sort of the structure of a uh, of a narrative because I've only made games that are like Based in Twine or Ren Pi. Um, I'm always thinking about like branching dialogue and um, telling a story through branching dialogue. So it's important for me to know ahead of time where dialogue will branch and then come back together because it's so easy to write something um, that spirals off into like this crazy tangent and then it's a huge pain to try and bring it back into the sort of master narrative. Yeah. Um, So I try to nip that in the bud before I even get down that road. Um, My original fiction is a little different. I keep an idea document, uh, several, honestly, like some in notebooks, some in my phone, some on my computer, where I just jot down, Um, random things I think about or like things that people say while I'm out and about. Um, And then I participate in a lot of uh, like prompts and contests on a um, speculative fiction message board called Codex for sort of like newish professional writers um, where we, we post prompts and we post work and then we uh, vote on each other's work and we give critique. And that's been really helpful for me and sort of like, Writing quickly to a deadline, writing for an audience, writing just to prompts, because if I write my own thing um, that's like entirely just based off of um, my own timeline, my own ideas, whatever, it can take me a lot longer to finish it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine it helps exercise different writing muscles that you otherwise wouldn't be using.
2: Yeah, totally. Like one thing that we do a lot is um, flash fiction contests, which are not, flash fiction is not my strength at all. It's like a very, very particular type of writing. It's uh, less than a thousand words. So trying to tell a um, compelling, complete story in a thousand words is really difficult, um, unless you're doing it all in dialogue. But then because people are expecting um, some prose to, you have to sort of learn how to marry those two things in a very short space. Uh, It's always been a struggle for me because I tend to write long.
0: (laughs) That's our problem too.
2: Yeah. Sometimes it's like really slow. Sometimes it's very fast. It just sort of depends on how much work the idea needs. Um, I don't like to plan out my stuff ahead of time, really. Um, I like to do sort of like tentpole outlining where I'll have a vague idea of what needs to happen at the beginning, like the end of the first act. And uh, in the second act, and then at the end. And then how we get to those points uh, is sort of up to what I think feels right in the moment, which can make editing very difficult. Going back later and being like, why the fuck did I do this, this <laughs> stupid thing? Um, so maybe I should try Ashley's method of very carefully planning everything.
0: So, do you not like planning things because you don't think it would be, be organic? The ending you came up with, or what you the other tempos you would make?
2: No, no. I think I think planning uh, very carefully is actually a really great way to um, to tell story. I'm not really worried about the organicness of it. It's more that when I'm writing, um, your your subconscious makes connections with stuff that you've written previously. And when you're when I'm at least when I'm sitting down to write an outline, um, I'm not necessarily making the same connections. My, I guess my brain just needs time to think about it.
1: I will say, too, that it's for Nickelodeon, I have to beat it out, like mm. detail wise. But for my own stuff, I find that very difficult. So I, I'm kind of in the same boat with you. Where it, I also, the, the idea that you, like, to be able to self motivate and not kill an idea before it even gets off the ground. I think I found that I, I I can't really be as precious about details because I will be able to if I'm thinking too much about detail I will be able to talk myself into just not doing the idea at all.
2: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: um, so I think there is a I think that's it makes sense. I think there's a certain amount of like you kind of have to kind of just get it down. I actually read an um, article recently that basically said, which I sent it to a friend who's just started writing for the first time. Kind Yay. of. <laughs> uh, I know, right? and it was basically like you don't get to decide if you don't get to decide if your work is good so stop <laughs> yeah totally
2: it's it's um, so easy to get wrapped up in that not the first draft
1: mhm uh, so yeah i have found that if i i think the detail oriented part of my brain is extremely useful but not not at the beginning at the beginning i just need to like vomit stuff out <laughs> and then that's when you're editing you're yeah when you go back and edit you're like god fucking damn it but <laughs> it's also you know um at least you wrote something yeah
0: you used to worry about finishing something the first time and then you can mm-hmm. worry about it if it was like just looking at what you actually did
2: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely
0: our problem is always we don't accept that our first draft will be bad it's like no we can make it the first one will be good this you time it'll be good yeah it'll be good <laughs> yeah and not that like no accept that it's bad and then you can make it better mm-hmm. then it like it's so much it goes so much faster and easier after that but no, it. But you don't understand.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I get that. I totally hate rework, so I want to get things as perfect as possible the first mm-hmm. time. But just sort of like giving up control, I think, is a really important part of the writing process. Whether you're writing with a team or writing with yourself, is saying like, I can't control this thing, so I'm just going to let it go. Yeah. yeah.
0: Are both of you any good at maintaining personal deadlines?
2: I don't bother to set personal <laughs> deadlines, frankly, really? because if it's like, a, if it's a rule that I set myself, it doesn't feel like a real rule or right. a real deadline. It's like, well, I just made this deadline. I can, I can miss it. Who cares? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, but I am very serious about work deadlines.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm in the same sort of situation. And I do find that like, which I don't know if this is right, but in the ide- in the ideation phase, especially like when, it, uh, and it, when I'm just starting to work on something, I feel like, I have a hard time letting stuff breathe, Mm. which I think is also important to do. I find myself wanting to just kind of brute force it, which I don't think is actually very helpful to my writing or my process. Because if I... I want to try to work on it like a little bit every day, but um, if I... For I think, I don't know, there's a certain element of, like, if I force myself to finish it before I, like, know where I'm headed, um, or I have the impulse that, like, that will be the next step that will actually, like, make me excited about what I'm writing, then um, I think it's easier for me to kind of give up on it. Yeah. So allowing it to be a bit more organic has been helpful for me.
0: I think there are two types of brute forcing, like one bad, one good, where like there's the one (laughs) bad, the bad one is trying to like just force, if you're like trying to come up with a new idea, trying to force creativity out of you, like I need to come up with my new idea, so I was forcing blood from a stone type of, trying to Mm -hmm. think of something. But I think what can work is just writing anything down, or like I know I've had runs where this really late at night, because I I don't like writing late at night, but I'll do it sometimes, where I'll come the next morning, and just because I was writing for like an hour or two of just whatever came to my head, the stuff I came up with was so weird or outside of my comfort zone that there'll be some nugget of an idea that you can run with after that. Mm. But it's a lot of shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to accept that. Yeah. <laughs> at least you got, yeah. At least you got something out.
2: Yeah, I think it's important to let your work sort of marinate. Some, some things need to sit longer than others. Um, but like last year, I wrote a book... And all the advice that I'd seen from professional writers was like, don't try and edit it right away. Just go put it in a box and go work on something else for a few months. So I didn't start editing it until um, like May of this year. And I was able to see it much more clearly. It was like someone else had written it. So I was no longer attached to it. So I could, you know, cut a bunch of stuff and not feel the anguish Mm -hmm. of losing, you know, like this great chapter, this amazing
1: character or whatever. Right.
0: Ashley, do you have a similar feeling with that with performing where, where you want to revisit stuff that you've done like during like your actual contract?
1: Uh, like b- before it comes out.
0: I talking about something like you recorded something at the beginning of the week and you're halfway through the week and you want to go back and redo yeah. what you did. Yeah.
1: Well, for Horizon, we actually did that um, just because <laughs> it wasn't planned, but the way that the recording happened was we had an Excel, a very complicated Excel spreadsheet that had the selected takes already Implemented, So you could click on them and play them if they'd already been recorded. And so we had recorded, I don't, I don't really remember how many lines of Aloy. Um, but then we would kind of found the voice for her later on in one of the later sessions. Like it kind of took a little bit um, for us to find her because they, the devs and I and my director, Jamie, were sort of all working in concert to try to figure out exactly how we wanted um Eloi to be presented and how to balance all the different aspects of her personality. Um, and I was very conscious of not wanting her to come off like a capital S strong female character <laughs> that has like no psychology, you know? Yeah. And, but also trying to balance, like, she is strong and she is capable, but like where do we put her vulnerability and how much do we show and when and all that kind of stuff. So we found the balance with her and then just sort of happenstance, we were going through, um, one of the producers was checking an earlier line, and I was like, oh, God, that's not her at all. Um, it's just a completely different character. Like, that doesn't sound like what we've found. And so what was nice is that the devs were totally um, amenable to going back and re-recording that stuff. So we actually did uh, quite a bit of re-recording from, I think, the beginning of the game, because which I, my director, Jamie uh, Modalero, was saying is pretty common in a game of that length. Um,
0: that's good. Because... Then.
1: Yeah, because you just, you find he's, you know, when it's a protagonist or something, you kind of find the character a little bit later and then potentially have to go back and and fiddle with some of the earlier stuff you did, Um, which makes players would notice that anyway. Yeah, totally. Um, But apart from Aloy, not really. um, There have been moments, especially in in, um, some cartoon sessions that I've had where I was like, I remember thinking, fuck, I really wish I could... Go back and take that again. I don't know how that came out and not doing it like doing a line enough times that you sort of lose sense of what the line even means anymore. Yeah. But then you kind of <laughs> at that point you sort of have to trust the people you're working with. And then usually what will happen is it'll come out and I'll be like, oh, that actually sounds fine. <laughs> um, because I had, you know, they're competent, talented people working with me. It's not all just on me. Um, but yeah, that mostly has only happened with Horizon primarily.
0: I want to backtrack to just like a minute ago when we were talking about letting like your writing sit for a bit before you come back to it. For both of you, when you don't have the time to let your writing sit for a bit, how do you manage your writing then? Do you just try to get in from a bunch of different people to just like, hey, am I crazy? Like, what do you think of this? Or do you just trust your writing that you did beforehand? And it's like, okay, it's good. I'll try to revise it now as quickly as I can, but I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, for me, at least, when I when I don't have time to let something sit, it's usually because it's for a, a job. Yeah. Um, and so, at that point, yeah, it's you kind of are reliant on the objective viewpoints of others. Um, so, like, for this Nickelodeon show, there's a room, and, you know, I have an EP, and I have to there's a certain point where I have to have enough objectivity about what I'm writing and enough humility to say, like I can't fix this on my own or like if I hit a wall and I don't know how to get through it or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, And then at that point you kind of have to turn to the room um, for help to solve the problem. Um, And then there was, I did a, um, a graphic novel. I wrote an adventure time graphic novel that was, uh, it was just me and an artist. And so a lot of it was, uh, asking people for feedback and um bouncing ideas off of just friends that were kind enough to give me some time because yeah I do find that um at least for me writing completely completely in isolation is difficult I at a certain point I do have to show the work to someone else <laughs> um I don't know I mean I've never written a novel so I have no idea how that process works and if there are certain steps in which you do show your work to other people but um at least for the work that I do, I, I if I reach a cer- I have to reach a certain point and then start getting outside feedback.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, outside feedback is really important. It's really easy to get trapped in your own head and sort of lose track of, um, how something sounds or how something reads. So I'm really lucky to work in a, a fairly large writing team. There's four of us in one office and then our lead writer does some writing. And then one of our uh, area designers does quite a bit of writing too. Um, and so just having them to bounce ideas off of um, has been really beneficial. And then we periodically take breaks from writing, like hardcore writing on quests and dialogue or whatever, um, to read each other's work and leave feedback. And that's um, really, really important because it's something doesn't always read to other people like it reads to you. So a line that seems perfectly clear to you might be very confusing to someone else. Um, mm. So I found that that to be really beneficial for for novel writing too um after i had finished it last year i sent the first fifteen thousand words to um several other writer friends sorry my cat is uh, (laughs) really demanding of attention right now um (laughs) and um had them read through it we we traded the beginnings of all of our novels and i got a lot of really great feedback that was like hey you know um this part, you can just totally drop this first 10,000 words, or you can move it to the middle of the book. Um, you should actually actually start here, which is like two chapters later. Um, it's much more engaging or whatever. And that has been invaluable for me in looking at my outline again and shifting things around. Um, and I, I wouldn't have known that that was a problem if I hadn't have shown it to someone else.
0: Oh, I totally had transitioned, but I forgot about it. <laughs> 40 minutes, and I think we can do this Greg Kasavin question now. Drop this bomb. <laughs> So, friend of the show, Greg Kasavid, creative director and writer on Pyre and Bastion and Transistor, he did an interview recently where he said, uh, video games don't need their stories to be great, that they can actually get in the way, like stories can get in the way of a great game, and that the job of a game story is just to provide context. And I was wondering what two of you think of that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I pretty strongly disagree with that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm kind of, I mean, Kate works more in games, so I'm kind of more curious to hear what she thinks first. Uh,
2: I I have a tough time with this, because I can totally see his point of view. Yeah. Um, I think that that works more for different types of games than others. Like, an RPG is very story-driven, so by the nature of the type of game you're making, it has to have a very strong story. But um, a game like Spelunky is all all gameplay, all mechanics. It doesn't need a good story. It doesn't need a story at all. Um, so it's really just a question of like what type of game we're trying to make. And I think for Supergiant Games, um, in particular, from his point of view, I can see why he would say, like you know games don't need a great story. The Supergiant game stories are good, but they're um, they're sort of uh, on the same level of importance as the gameplay. And they reinforce each other, which is really important.
1: What was this? Could you repeat his quote?
0: I'll link the article in the show notes. It's, it was like three different quotes that were spaced in a paragraph and they were, games don't need their stories to be great. They can actually get in the way of a great game and that the job of a game story is to provide context.
1: I guess it just, again, I guess it just depends on your goals. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, Because to me, some of my most meaningful game experiences have been because of story. Mass Effect is one of my favorite franchises. And I don't think that they're particularly compelling games in terms of their mechanics. Oh, yeah. They're pretty straightforward. But I think about Mass Effect way more than probably any other game. Um, And, in fact, the mechanics of the the narrative in those games is the thing that I think about the most. Because at the end of Mass Effect 2, there's the suicide mission, and you have those choices of who to send and on what, you know... uh, not quests, but tasks, Mm -hmm. how to um, delegate tasks. And I remember there's a moment where you need to assign a leader for a B squad and your choices are Garrus and Miranda. And I remember thinking, because I never really warmed to Miranda much, um, but I remember thinking, Garrus got his entire previous squad killed. though. (laughs) That's like his (laughs) whole thing. Um, And I was very, very nervous about losing people because I knew that, conceivable kind of everyone could was on the chopping block potentially um but then i remember thinking but garris has so much guilt about that and he's been trying to make amends for that for so long there's no way he would let it happen again and so then i chose him to lead the team and everyone lived yes um yeah so it's one of those <laughs> things where to me that is a a gameplay mechanic a very very small gameplay mechanic that I guess you could argue that the story was context for that game mechanic. But in that moment, character development story, like all of that was at the forefront and the mechanic was uh, elevating that Um, it was elevating story. And so I know that there are some people that are of the mind that like emergent storytelling in games, you know, like the stories that people that came out of Daisy or that come out of Spelunky or Minecraft or whatever are more true to games or more um, consistent with the medium but, yeah, I guess my – I would always prefer – I would probably always take a, a story that uses game mechanics to tell it than the reverse, probably. Like, I I value game story. Like, because the thing to me about story in games is that it's not always done successfully because they, people don't marry mechanics and narrative storytelling often. They're kind of just sandwiched together. They don't really, like, influence each other that much. Yeah. But – um. The games that I adore and that I remember the most are ones that marry those two things successfully, and thus the stories are insane. Like, Mass Effect is one of the most compelling stories that I've ever experienced, not just in games, but at all. Um Because of the way that it marries, you know, pretty simplistic game mechanics, but game mechanics and storytelling. Um or you know a game like Undertale where it uses game mechanics sometimes as goofs but also as ways of of telling a pretty compelling emotional story. So yeah, I guess it I think I really feel like it just depends on what you what you place value on most and I guess I don't I would not put Spunky for example is one of my favorite games, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that that is like a purer game. Than oh, yeah, Mass Effect, you know? Go, no, ahead, go ahead.
2: Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say that um, a, good, good, a good game story can save a bad game. Like, mm-hmm. Dragon Age 2 is my f- favorite game. Um, the story is very unique and very different in its genre, and the game itself is known for being pretty bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but what makes it so great and so compelling is the story, and so I'm willing to put up with, like... Janky arcade combat or limited areas or um, crappy graphics or whatever uh, because the story is so good and so compelling to me. Mm -hmm.
0: I wanted to ask because we kind of got to it in this discussion when was the last time either you were frustrated by a game story? Like, you don't have to call out a specific game, but what was it about the storytelling that was frustrating to you? Like, what they were doing?
1: I kind of touched on it a second ago, but I really, to me, you have to be conscious of the medium. That you are writing in. So if you are going to write a game and then not think at all about how your story affects mechanics or how mechanics affects story, then why are you writing a game? Like it needs yeah. like the the main point of, of of games as a medium is that they are an interactive medium. So I mean, when I was a kid, I love Melgar Sol was one of my favorite games when I was a kid. But I get why people skip cutscenes. way. you know what I mean? Because they're like, yeah, oh, I'm playing yeah. a game, I don't want to watch a movie. Which, to me, I'm not, that doesn't bother me as much. Um, but I think if you, if you want to tell a story in a game, then you have to think about why does this story need to be told in a game? Or like, how can I use game mechanics to elevate this story? How do I marry them? Because I, the thing that, I, that bothers me a lot is just when things are sort of It's like people whoa, that's a really big airplane. Sorry. (laughs) Um, Okay, cool. Where people make games like they're making a sandwich Mm -hmm. where things are just layered on top of each other, when instead you're making a stew. (laughs) Like you should be making a stew. Like you should be mixing all these things together to make a cohesive whole rather than like this is the part where we have the story. This is the part where we have the sneaking mission. This is the, you know, how, why is it a stealth game? Why does the narrative, you know, in what way does the narrative meld with the stealth mechanics to tell a compelling story that like makes everything fuse together. Um, And I think there are a lot of games that are, you know, which is, it's super hard to do also. So (laughs) I also understand that. (laughs) And it's not to say that games that make people that make games that are more like sandwiches, that the stories aren't compelling, but I.
0: We're talking like an, an ideal here.
1: An ideal would be, yeah, that you would think about why you're writing a game specifically. Yeah. Right.
2: What can a game story do that, you know, like a movie or a book or a comic can't do? Mm-hmm.
1: So why did you pick this medium? Right.
0: Because yeah. corporate told us to. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> right. Which I think is that that's a huge pressure on a lot of people. So I get it, you know? Yeah. And, um, well, like I said, I also, I'm not like, I have friends that will, uh, they'll never see a performance of, of, <laughs> of a game that I've been in because they will never sit through cutscenes. Like I have friends that do that, you know? Mm. Um, And it doesn't bother me as much. But yeah, like, I do feel like I would, I mean, that's, I mean, that's why fucking Half-Life was such a insane revelation for so many people. Oh, yeah. That's why people are still talking about wanting Half-Life 3, you know what I mean? Because those games really revolutionized mechanics-based storytelling, or just storytelling that just was part, like, part and parcel with the game, you know? Yeah. Um,
0: Did you all see the Half-Life 3 story that came out this week?
2: No. I didn't read it, but I saw that there was a Half-Life 3 game jam now. Oh, <laughs> well, that, really? Yeah.
0: Well, Mark Laidlaw, one of the original writers from Valve, posted basically what the story of Episode 3 was going to be, and I was happy to read it.
1: So they've ju- they've more or less admitted that it's never going to come out.
0: Mark Laidlaw yeah. posted a story where the names have all been changed, so it's totally not Half-Life 3, you know, <laughs> legally. It was a weird thing to read, like, oh, that's it? Okay. Right
1: that's the thing too they could never <laughs> yeah. how could it ever stand up to the expectations and reading
0: as like a short story and it's not a game anymore so it's it feels really different because Half-Life for much people like that story I don't people remember that like there's not a ton there it's like it's a lot of inference and mm-hmm. it's, yeah. like a, it's like Absolutely. a world setup. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. you, you would never get the story the way you're getting it from like the short story format
1: right yeah yeah, yeah.
2: that's why I didn't read it I didn't I didn't want to, uh, it just didn't feel like the right experience.
0: Yeah.
1: Right, because there are moments, I mean, I still think about, too, like, I think it's in the beginning of Half-Life 2 where you're, you're trying to run from, I forget, the, I haven't played it in so long. I forget. The Combine? The Combine, thank you. And you are running down a hallway and a door opens and the Combine come out and you turn around and they're behind you. It's just stuff like, you know, like, yeah. that's a very small moment that isn't that complicated, but the fact that you're playing it it makes your heart stop, you know? Right, yeah. it wouldn't even show up in a script. No.
0: I have no segue for this, but it's a question that I don't think we've talked about in this podcast before. How do both of you handle getting notes on your writing that you may not agree with and performance? Or are just plain awful? <laughs>
1: like
0: how, how do you be diplomatic and not get fired? <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, for me, it's I try to understand the context of the critique or like where the person is coming from Um, especially with like short fiction or novels and with games too I guess everyone has their idea of like what is good storytelling and if your idea and that person's idea don't mesh you're never really going to see eye to eye about like what's good because it's totally subjective Um, so a lot of it's just accepting like you disagree with me about this one fundamental thing and that's fine and um, I'm just going to ignore you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Unless it's, you know, my game director, and then I have to um, basically bend to what he wishes because it's uh, he's the game director.
0: That's what we've done too lately where we'll have a disagreement with someone and then they are wrong. <laughs> but we'll like say, okay, here's our reasoning for, for this thing. And they'll go, no. And then we're like, okay.
2: Okay. Yeah, what can <laughs> you do? Yeah. Just shrug. Like, okay.
0: I'm not going to brute force this even though like it would make the story better but you just gotta i'll just accept this but there's another part where they're like you're if they're giving you critiques like that most situations it's like you need to see what the problem behind that problem is like what structural problems that they're giving like these sur- superficial like changes they want you to make
1: mm, yeah right that's part of it probably i think a lot of the time is translating yeah because people might not necessarily they have an instinct about a thing and they might be telling you giving you the wrong diagnosis yeah so you kind of have to think like i don't agree with that but is there something what are they reacting to um if they're not if they're not like you know uh seasoned writers it might be hard you know they'll they might have the correct instinct but be telling you the wrong thing they're like pointing you in the wrong direction but they are keying into something that isn't working yeah. right um, totally i've benefited from being especially recently this uh at glitch text that i've been in a room of people that are very smart and so I've found that I can if I don't agree with a note or a suggestion, um, I can give my I can give my uh, reasoning for why it doesn't jive with me. And uh, we can usually have a conversation about it that leads to an understanding, which Mm -hmm. is nice. Um, And the EP for that show, he and I are very much on, on that wavelength. We're pretty similar in our sensibility, so we can have conversations about it. And it's also I think the main thing, too, is that d- doing enough writing and I find that I writing interesting to me is personal, but also not as personal. Like I said it before, I think I kind of see it as like solving a puzzle. Mm. Um, so it's easier for me to be receptive to criticism about my writing usually, I think. And have an objective viewpoint. So I think that's also, like, earning trust with people where, like, when they give you a good note, you can take it. Right. And then yeah. if you're not taking a note, then they know that it's not just because you're being stubborn. Because I've definitely given notes to people that are just straight up stubborn. And you're like, oh, yeah, totally. Okay, Jesus. <laughs> Why did you ask me for notes? Um, and I think also it's, like, in a professional context, it's hard. And I know that there are some shows that I wasn't in direct contact with the executives, but I knew, like, I would talk to people that were, and they would give notes that were kind of like, "Could this? Could so and so blush in this scene?" <laughs> uh, and it would make <laughs> it would make the head writer or the EP or whatever be like, "So, can, like, why?" You know. But you kind of then it becomes a, I think, of course, you sort of start bargaining. Is my understanding? Yeah. I haven't had to do this personally, like I said, but that you know. I'll take this note. I'll take this note. I patently disagree with this one. I'm not taking it. I'll take this note. So it's like you right. take enough of them so that the person, either because they're good or because it's not going to kill you to implement them so that yeah. the person feels heard. But then you stand your ground on like, I will not do this, this and this.
0: Yeah. there's a We haven't had to deal with this like on the giving notes side, but there's a really good Tippett quote that came out recently where he was, he's a visual effects supervisor. Where he was the guy who was in charge of like the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. He was the dinosaur supervisor in the credits. <laughs> yeah, <out that> <laughs> so he, he failed his job. But um, <laughs> he was talking about modern the modern visual effects industry, where they'll have directors come in and every like everything's like these minute notes, like I don't like the color of this thing, or like change, like take this right. thing off this character and stuff. And every like for months, it's all that's all the notes that they give, and it gets to the point where. He says, like, a good leader needs to inspire the workers underneath him. But the way that these people are working, it's like, you'll talk to, like, a, an artist. On the, they'll respond to these questions or these critiques like, sure, like, what the fuck? Just tell me what to do. I don't care anymore.
1: Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you're going to nitpick that badly.
0: I know, like, being a freelance writer is definitely been a situation where we felt like that, where it's like, I'm not getting paid enough. Just tell me what you want, and I'll figure out a way to do it.
1: Right. Yeah. That's the hard thing, too, is that sometimes you're not going to work with people that actually value collaboration. That's pretty hard. I've been lucky in that because I know people, you know, will talk shit about executives for good reason, because a lot of them are terrible. But I've I've had the benefit of working with working under executives at, at certain places that have been actually pretty cool and like have a good perspective and like know why they're asking what they're asking and actually like, you know aren't being super unreasonable and saying like, but why is, why is their hair pink? You know, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, I feel like a lot of note taking too, is just like, it's just a practice in humility yeah. and patience, <laughs> um, <laughs> which are great traits to try to develop. So thanks writing.
0: It's cases where like your boss just wants to put their own stamp on something. So they're going to give you, they want you to change something no matter what.
1: That is definitely the case sometimes I think. Yeah. I, for me, I've been really
2: lucky in that, all the people that I work with who've given notes of my work, um, I even though I'm new, I have a relationship with them that's built on trust. Like I trust their storytelling sense, so um, and I trust their vision and understanding of the game that we're making. So if even if I don't agree with an edit, um, you know, ultimately I trust this person and their vision enough to say like, okay, I am willing to accept this critique that I don't agree with and implement it because mm-hmm. I trust you.
0: Yeah. Right. All right, I have a question now. So this, I thought this when Kate was talking about getting prompts for characters like the pirate badass. But so Ashley, when like when you officially like get a character to play as, how much info do you usually get?
1: Uh, as far as voice acting goes. Yeah. Usually very little. I will often show up to a session and not even know what character I'm playing.
0: Wow. Even after like you've gotten like you signed the contract.
1: I mean, for there are certain games where. I, you know, because it's one of those things, too, where, like, you might audition, and then a couple months later, it doesn't happen as frequently with games that way, but, I, you know, and I do, I have to do, like, so many auditions that uh, I'll just forget, even if I, you know, knew at one point what this character was, because I auditioned for it two months ago, I go in, and they're like, yeah, you're up for this character, I don't remember who that person is anymore, you know, and I've done, like, 50 auditions since then, and... Yeah, the main thing with games usually is that you show up, you get the script in front of you in that moment, and then you kind of have to just hit the ground running. So, often, very, very little.
0: How much do you would you want then?
1: I mean, preferably, <laughs> preferably you would know your character, how what what their relevance is to the overall storyline. Mm-hmm. You would ideally be able to see the script beforehand. You would know if this is an existing franchise or not. If it is an existing franchise, does your character have relevance to previous games, even if they weren't present in them? You know, are they like a relative, a co-worker, you know, whatever. Um,
0: Sensible requests.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Ideally, you would just want to know (laughs) who your character is and why they're important to the story. Um, But that, yeah, that doesn't really.
0: I had a follow-up question to this where that doesn't really make sense anymore because I wrote down, can you know too much about a character that you're playing as?
1: (laughs) I mean, I don't. There are certain auditions sides that I've gotten where they kind of give me... They'll give me...
0: Family history.
1: Yeah, surplus of inf- information that kind of just will be sort of confusing to try to download.
0: It's longer than the actual script.
1: Yeah, that's like... Those I'll kind of just have to paraphrase for myself and go like, okay, what attributes are they looking for? And then mm-hmm. look at the script and kind of make my... Because the other thing too is that as far as acting goes, you c- you can't predict what a person's looking for. So you sort of just have to... Make a choice that you find compelling, and then do it. So having that much much information can, I think, kind of trap you into trying to figure out exactly what the person uh writing this wants, which it's impossible to know that. Um, yeah. And yeah. trying to fit yourself into a mold that you're assuming someone has will not enable you to do your best work. So in a, in in terms of like sides, i think yes, there's too much information you can have. When i get, you know, cast, i don't necessarily need to know like what their favorite food is or, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff, but definitely story relevant information would be great. <laughs> yeah.
2: Do you ever record with um the writers sort of in the booth?
1: Yes. Is that helpful it's, or unhelpful? It's it's very helpful. Um on Horizon, there was always a writer on Skype at the very least. And then for DLC recording recently, we had um, we had the head writer give us a briefing, actually, before we started recording about what the story was and who the characters were and everything. It was super, super helpful because being the main character, I'm learning – I'm having to learn so much information. I'm, I'm, I'm the conduit for information for the player. So right. there's so many names and people and relationships and stuff like that that on the day you have to be like, so, like, who is – who, I don't, I don't remember who's like Amon, who's this guy, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so getting a briefing from the writer was so helpful. So when I went into the booth, I was just able to, oh, I remember this character. Okay. They're related to this person. They're re- relevant in this way. They're important in this way, which was super helpful. And then he was actually in a couple of the sessions and he could just give me a um, a briefing on, okay, this is where, this is the landscape Because even stuff like, do I need to be shouting right now? Is there noise I need to be shouting over? Is there anything I need to be thinking about in terms of like... Because obviously in Horizon 2, there are so many conditionals. Like, did you complete this mission before this mission? Because if you did, then you might have more information. Or did you just happen upon this um, quest? Or did someone give it to you? So then there's all this conditional dialogue. If you're just discovering something versus if someone told you about it. So having a roadmap from the person that wrote it is insanely helpful because otherwise you're kind of just guessing
0: <laughs> it also helps a lot that you're like you're gaming literate
1: yeah that's probably not the case with yeah. most
0: voice actors
1: that does help when i auditioned for aloy the sides were um it was pretty clear immediately i was like oh okay so there's branching not branching but like well there's branching dialogue but also there were like choice point decisions where you can choose how you respond to a, the same situation in different ways because the sides were laid out in that way um and being able to see that i was like oh okay cool so there's a compassionate response, an intellectual response, and an aggressive response. I get it. You know, Same situation, different responses or whatever. So that definitely helps.
0: It's not related to voice acting, it's more about related to writing, but like with Ashley when you're writing Adventure Time and Kate you work on Pillars of Eternity, when you're working on an established franchise, how do you balance staying true to the IP's voice while also bringing your own? Mm. You want to go first? <laughs>
1: Well, for me, it kind of just felt like writing fan fiction.
2: <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, it's a really good experience.
1: Yeah, it actually, it strangely, is. So when I tested for Adventure Time, I was kind of like, well, what characters do I want to see interact? You mm-hmm. know, or what things as like a person watching this show did I wish I saw more of? Mm-hmm. You know, right?
0: How do you prevent from being like too fan fiction-y then?
1: Um, I guess you just have to be aware of not being indulgent and yeah. knowing like, you have to know who these characters are. So just because you might want to see. Lumpy Space Princess date Ice King. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know who would want to see that, but (laughs) Ah! you you know that's not something that's that you just kind of I don't know a lot of I mean so much of writing I feel like is instinctual, Mm -hmm. but you kind of have to gut check like is this something would I feel like Adventure Time jump the shark if I saw this you know what I mean
0: yeah
1: um and like is this consistent with the characters that they've established and if you even did this story like how would like what angle would you have to take on it to make it feel like it was in the universe still you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you just sort of have to be like, I think it's great to be a fan because it means you're passionate, you know, and you have a intrinsic knowledge of the universe and everything. But you still have to like put your writing chops first.
0: The Absolutely. fan can't be totally in the driver's seat. No, not at all. They can be like in the passenger seat. They're like pointing out cool stuff to do.
1: Totally. Exactly. Right.
0: Yeah. What about you, Kate?
2: Um. I mean, I, I mostly agree. It's it's like however much I might want to, you know, ship certain characters in the party. That's not my job (laughs) maybe as a fan but not as a writer um for me it's been a lot of like finding the boundaries and then pushing them as appropriate boundaries and tone mostly um like pillars is a pretty the first one is uh very serious and uh, high fantasy in tone and this one um is a little more humorous so putting in a lot of humor in my dialogue and then getting notes back saying like okay this is a little too ridiculous this is good um so that's been really helpful for me in sort of like learning to work with the tone of the um, IP. And also, as like a junior designer, I don't have a lot of a lot of clout or sway. So um, it's a lot of learning to like surrender on the big stuff. So if I'm writing a, a really big important cutscene that every player will see, I hew pretty closely to what the lead writer or the creative director tell me to do. But when I'm writing like codex entries or barks or quest-giving NPCs or flavor text or any of that kind of stuff, um, there's a lot more leeway for me to kind of put my own spin on it. So I sort of save that um, that creative desire, that creative energy for the stuff that I can control. A lot of it too is like collaborating um, early and often, I guess, and finding the team voice. So there's, there's four of us. We all write really differently. Um, and part of finding the IP voice is reading my coworkers' writing, talking with them on Slack or, you know, over coffee or whatever, um, sort of getting a read on what they're writing, what they find important, and then trying to um, incorporate that into my writing as well so that it sounds um, cohesive to the player.
0: I have a this is like related to Pillars and Ashley I'd love to hear your thoughts because that's in a general way, but Pillars and Obsidian's games are not short games. No. <laughs> so when you're working on stories that can last dozens and dozens of hours, how do you account for the, the challenge of all games that you have no real idea of how your work is going to be digested, whether people are paying attention to key information or whether they take breaks of days, weeks, or even months between play sessions and don't remember things? Uh, how do you deal with that?
2: Oh my, I'm, oh my God, it's just like so hard. Um, we try to introduce very important information uh, several times so that the player if they missed it and um or was weren't paying attention and they haven't played the game for like two weeks or whatever, they have an opportunity to sort of like be reacquainted with whatever the important point of um the quest that they're on is. It's I don't know like how else to um to really do that because there's so many different situations under which the player could
1: play the game. Yeah. Right. I know for Horizon that was part of the challenge in finding Eloy's voice is that mm-hmm. You could get a mission at the very start of the game. And then I think that actually even happened in my playthrough where there is a side quest that I got right at the very beginning of some like Nora hunters that had gone missing. And I didn't finish it until the very, very, very end where I had to come back uh, to like the Nora homeland for a main quest. And I like I forgot about them (laughs) and I happened (laughs) upon them and I like saved them or whatever. But it's one of those things where you could have 50 hours in between. Those two quests, which happened in my playthrough. So Aloy has to be in an air, like she has to be in a vocal, emotional range that makes sense and feels contiguous, you know, regardless of how you decide to play the game. So it is one of those weird things where, like, even though she learns a lot in that game and changes. You still need to be able to believe that whatever performance happened in this quest at the very, very beginning of the game could happen at the end, and vice versa. So it's a it's a hard, it's a balance it's a weird balance to try to strike.
0: And maybe like as like a player of games for the two of you, would you prefer more like a like a general recap page? Like, here's everything you did in this game so far that's constantly updated, or would you want more in the game itself where it'd be handled elegantly, ideally, but you encounter NPCs at that- comment, hey, you did this recently, remember that? That was cool.
2: (laughs) I mean, I think that's kind of what the function of a a quest journal serves, to remind you of what you've done. Um, We also sort of try to reinforce that through um, our NPCs that are related to factions. So they will respond differently to you um, based on what you've done. And so the way we have it set up, it's on like two different meters. So there's like a positive meter and a negative meter. So if you've you know you rolled into this faction stronghold and you killed everyone um other people in the faction will be like wow you are an incredible asshole but if you also um you know save someone from a burning building then another npc will be like hey but you also saved a bunch of people's lives so maybe you're not the worst um and that has been a good way for us to remind players of like what they've done previously
0: Mm. yeah that totally like works in the universe for your game where I feel like not every game can have like a quest journal.
2: Oh no, yeah, it's it's very RPG focused. Yeah, yeah. totally.
0: I liked how The Witcher 3 did it where on story milestones it would give you a different loading screen with the narrator telling you like what you just did and what your next thing you have to do is basically. Mm. And on a different token, I love how the new Zelda just has defeat Ganon as your main quest. Yeah, it's so
1: <laughs> awesome. That's so fucking great. Yeah, <laughs> I love the new Zelda
0: so much. It's extremely good. I'd like to play it sometime. Oh my God. <laughs> Someday I'll play that game.
1: It's insane. That guy, whatever. I will go on for another hour about that game. Yeah, but yeah, it's incredible. It's super. Kill, good. kill the bad guy is it's just <laughs> kill the dude is basically all it is.
0: How do you think the story of that game is? Both of you.
1: I think it's an interesting the flash. I mean, you guys haven't played it.
0: No, I, I know stuff that happens in it. You can talk about. Well, it. it's basically, the
1: the story is kind of told through Link loses his memory. and It's told through flashbacks. So you go to points of interest. He gets his memory back, and you see a cutscene, basically, so it is interesting in that, like if you don't give a shit, you can just never do that mission and never find those cutscenes. Yeah, but for someone that likes story, I really like tracking those down and finding them. Um, I don't know i I guess I think it's clever in terms of just because it gives the player the choice to avoid the story if they want to, so I think it's clever in that way, but as far as like telling a compelling story, I actually don't really know how I feel about it.: Yeah. That's
0: like a- Plain I've heard from people Where like The story's the least Interesting thing About that game Mm. But the rest of it Is so good So like of course It's gonna be
1: (laughs) I will say though That I like Zelda's characterization I guess because she has A characterization at all (laughs) Yeah she's like
2: Agency and uh, A point of view
1: She has like An insecurity And like a I don't know There's like This this self-hatred about her That's sort of Interesting Yeah it's fascinating Yeah Which is kind of why I I like finding the memories Because she I think they actually Did some interesting stuff With her Mm Mm-hmm and she does feel like the protagonist, you know. Yeah, it feels like the story, what little there is, is about her. So
0: it probably earned the name.
1: Right. Exactly. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: it's like Link is the vehicle for telling Zelda's story.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I cut you off before earlier, Kate. What well, like, what are your thoughts on the story for the game?
2: Oh, uh, I don't have anything to add really. <laughs> okay. um, I mean, it's not spectacular. I don't, I don't love sort of like flashbacks as a core. Yeah, um, narrative framework or whatever, but for a Zelda game, it's great. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, Zelda games have never been that, that miraculous in terms of narrative. Right, it's no. just super fun gameplay.
0: Yeah. yeah. I think people would like a Zelda game with a deep story to it.
1: I would love that. I would love to fucking play Zelda sometime. Oh my God,
2: please. I thought this game was gonna be Zelda when they first announced
1: it. I know, I remember that everyone was like, is that a, that's a girl, it's, that, it's a girl. No, Link's just really no. pretty. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I have a question related to this.
1: How pretty Link is? No,
0: unfortunately, it's an well. an important question. We've asked for other guests, are there any storytelling tools or methods that you feel are underutilized or overutilized in video games?
1: Under, over, hmm.
0: Like environmental storytelling, or how do you really feel about audio logs, <laughs> <laughs> or flashbacks?
2: I feel like audio logs are an unsolvable problem, or one we just haven't figured out how to solve yet.
1: Yeah.
0: They don't fit in every game, just use them in narratives where they make sense, where yeah. someone would be recording their last thoughts that are conveniently perfect for the plot that you're encountering. Right. I mean, that's what Tacoma does,
1: and it's perfect for that
2: game.
0: Yeah.
1: I will say that I think environmental storytelling is extremely compelling. And part of the difficult thing is that often the HUDs are really useful or complicated. And mm. so you don't look at the environment as much. Yeah. So I think that's a difficult thing sometimes.
2: That's a really good point. I've been playing inside. Um, I can't remember the name of the studio that made that game, but they made limbo previously. Oh my, and, oh my God. There's no, there's no HUD. There's no, um, there's no dialogue or text or voice or anything. It's all environmental storytelling and mm-hmm. it's, It's a really incredible experience um, how much they're able to do with just gameplay and environments.
1: And I will say this might be a contentious opinion because I do think that there's some really lovely stuff in inside, but I do feel like I wanted a clearer viewpoint from them um, Mm. in terms of what the story they were telling and how they wanted me to like, I do, I, I find myself really liking highly crafted narratives that I can like still react in a certain way to, but that I feel the intention of the creator as I'm watching, playing, reading it. Right. And I didn't get that as much from inside. Um, I think that's totally reasonable. Yeah. So I guess that's something that like, ideally, I guess I just want a balance of all things, but, um, (laughs) uh, but yeah, I mean, we talked, we talked about it to death too, but just the fact that most narrative is uh, not most, but often narrative is layered on top of, Things rather than integrated is right. something that I wish would change. and That's why yeah.
2: game story has a reputation for being bad.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I do find that like I miss mo- they're very rare, and I miss I kind of do miss moments like the one I described earlier in Half Life Two, where because I think they're and they're very difficult to pull off. I think, um, but where control is ripped from you in a moment, not even control, but you feel like you're cornered in a genuine organic way, even yeah. though it was a scripted sequence and it's hard it's hard to manipulate a player like that because we're used to having so much control but right. i think the end of half-life 2 has a really great moment in that regard too where like you just come off this insane s- like insanely difficult fight with all of those i forget their names too the big scary walkie dudes
0: oh yeah those guys are the they're best just called walkers aren't
1: they they're yeah they're walkers right and then when uh spoilers for half-life 2 i guess but <laughs> alex's-, <laughs> <laughs> uh, alex's dad gets killed and you just have to watch it happen and like right. suddenly control is ripped from you. You know, it's very effective. Yeah. Um, I think that's part par- probably part of the problem, too, is that games are often so frequently empowerment vehicles. Right. People that we are don't...
2: afraid to take away power from the player.
1: Yeah. But it's so effective if it's done well. Absolutely. Um, so I kind of miss that. Like make me, yeah, make me feel helpless for a second. Like I want to feel things. <laughs> Video <games. laughs> Um so I kind of miss moments like that too, where like you, like I don't mind. Like I think emergent stories are so incredible, but I also don't think it's an either or, you know. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I would I like that. to have highly scripted, like like take me on a on a path or like a journey that like surprises me and stuff like that, you know. Um, that I don't have total control over. That's okay with me.
0: All are welcome in this industry. Yeah. <laughs> and Kate, you mentioned why game writing is bad? Uh, do both of you these days? Do you think when the, there is bad writing, is it bad because? The actual writing itself is bad, or because it's just not utilized well, or implemented, or married to gameplay in a good enough fashion.
2: I mean, I think it could be all of the above, really. Mm. Um, some of it. This is more of a, an older problem. I don't think it's quite as big a deal anymore, but some of it was like not having professional writers writing on your game, yeah, where yeah. you know you have designers writing. Maybe they're super good designers, but they're not really experienced writers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that doesn't lead to great narratives. It
0: could. It could, though. It could. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I cut
1: you off, Ashley. Oh, no, no, not at all. Uh, same with performance, you know. Right. It's less of a problem. I mean, well, the strike's happening, so it's 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 an interesting time to be talking about this. But it is less of a problem in major narrative-driven games now. But yeah, if you don't have effective performances to execute good writing, then the writing will fall flat, unfortunately. Yeah, totally. You know?
2: I think the idea of having a writing team is... Um, much more common now like mm-hmm. there are game teams that have four or five writers some companies even have in-house editors amazing That's, yeah That's a luxury right oh yeah yeah i mean we don't we don't have an in-house editor and i wish we did i know bioware has an editing team whose whole job is like not just to find you know problems with a copy or misplaced commas or whatever but unifying protagonist voice making sure that uh, companion voices are consistent across multiple writers that kind of backup is so helpful so we still have the industry has a lot to learn in terms of like supporting writing teams but yeah it's it's already in a good place
1: and also um not that you can't hire people from outside the industry you know like film or tv writers but i think also like hiring people that know games and understand games you know i think there i don't think it's happening as much but i think there was like a time where people and kind of all unlike a lot of the fields it was just sort of like well pull people that are from different industries that are good writers or whatever. Right. But if you don't understand games and how they're different, then, and I mean, if someone's amenable to learning, then awesome. That's, that's great. But I think, you know, just assuming that you can hire a good writer, it's like assuming that you can, you can bring an on-camera person into a VO booth and they're just going to know what to do. Like it's, Mm, yeah, there, there are skills that, that, you know, overlap, but it's a completely different mechanical beast than working on camera. So yeah.
2: yeah, absolutely. Like, I my skills are not immediately transferable to writing TV. I've never written a traditional script. So, like, you know, like, if someone told me, like, hey, can you write this play? I'd be like, no. <laughs> no, I can't write no, this no, play. No, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, my skills are in um, branching storytelling.
0: Mm-hmm. But if you if you ask, like, most people on a dev team, they though, like, could you write a script? Like, could you write the dialogue of this character? Most people probably would say yes when they shouldn't.
1: That is another – I mean, you could speak more to this too, Kate, but it's m- I more have this feeling, knowing a lot of people that have written for games that – and I, I think it is changing, I hope it's changing, but that, like, the barrier to entry to coding is so much higher mm-hmm. than the barrier to entry to writing. Like, if you have a word processor and you can type sentences, you can claim to be a writer, which is not to say that, like, there are designers running around saying that, but I think I have heard stories of people not being – their level of expertise in their craft not being really respected because it's not as easy to delineate. Like, these are all of the things that I had to do to become skilled at at this creative craft versus like, you can look at a piece of artwork and have a better sense. You know, this person just started versus this person is a master or whatever. And like the intricacies of, how this person is, you know, more experienced or, like, what techniques they used, I won't know, but, like, just looking at it, I can be like, yeah, that's, this is a more complex piece of art than this stick figure drawing, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and you can have the same experience reading someone's writing, but I think, um, again, because all you really need is a word processor at, you know, baseline, um, right. I think there are sometimes people that kind of think, well, I can do that, which... I don't know, just from experience, being friends with lots of games writers, it it bums me out on their behalf, (laughs) because it's not that simple. And it's a little disrespectful to presume that, you know, you can do a job as equally as, as well as someone that has been doing it professionally for a long time, you know?
2: Yeah, I think part of it too, is like, people don't understand how long good writing takes to do and this can be sort of a difficulty when working with um producers so like hey here's a huge area can you write this in a week it's like i actually need four weeks to write this (laughs) um so just sort of conveying expectations um can be very challenging Mm -hmm. but I think we're relatively lucky at Obsidian and that the studio is more or less known for having good writing. So mm-hmm. people on our team respect our opinions and it's, it's kind of a bummer that's that that's, awesome. yeah, it's a bummer that that's not standard across the industry.
1: Yeah.
0: It feels like what we were just talking about was when people will feel like, Oh, I can learn guitar and they'll learn like the one or two songs and right. then the that they don't play guitar or it's, it's like mm. with Ryan, like, yeah, they can, they could pump out maybe one script but they don't have the discipline to like to maintain that schedule and pump out consistent writing.
1: It's also so subjective like we were talking about earlier, yeah. you know. Um people have different goals with their storytelling and different things that they're inspired by. So it gets really hard to like advocate for yourself if you're not even speaking the same language. It's kind of like what we're, you know, you guys were talking about earlier with taking notes. It's like I don't agree with this note. Well, I think you're wrong, okay? You <laughs> I mean yeah. like what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Um so I think that's a, ch- I know that, you know, from anecdotal experience, that's a challenge for a lot of games writers, which it does seem to be is changing as the industry matures. I hope it keeps trending in that, in that direction.
0: I feel like we're in a weird spot right now where games starting out and when games would have stories, people didn't appreciate writers. And then people started appreciating them more. And then maybe like the last decade or like five years with the rise of social networking and Twitter, Everyone's always writing more. And now it feels like they're going back to taking writing for granted because I can write this hot tweet now. And <laughs> it's so much easier than writing like a physics engine. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, I can totally write now. And I don't know if it's going to get worse or better with how things are heading.
1: I do think at least in games, like our stories, I think, are trending more complex mm-hmm. and more nuanced than not. Yeah. Um, and I, like you, I think you, one of you mentioned earlier, too, even if people can't articulate why, they can tell the difference. Yeah, Yeah. totally. So my hope is that that continues to be uh, the case and that people will recognize, like, yeah, we probably, if we want to tell a really, like, ambitious story, we should probably get, like, people that know how to tell stories for their living.
2: (laughs) I think part of it, too, is, like, changing the conversation around writing is a skill. It's not, it's not something innate that you're born with. It's something that right. you learn. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's hidden a lot from people who don't do creative writing. Um, they don't know that, you know, I was reading two or three books a week every week for most of my childhood. And that's part of the reason um, I picked up writing relatively quickly, because I had a lot of exposure to writing and good writing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are people who've been um, toiling in obscurity for like, 10 years and thought, published their first novel no one knows they wrote seven novels before that that didn't get published right there's a lot of like background that
1: gets hidden yeah like i i think i've been technically writing if you count my fan fiction mm. i've been technically <laughs> writing since i was 10 right you know so That's which isn't to say like anyone can start writing. like anyone like if you want to be a writer and you haven't written before you should just start but oh, i totally. think also like having the humi- humility to know like this is a skill it's a hard skill to learn and there are people you can learn from because that's the thing too if like a designer wanted to learn how to write i think that's awesome yeah. you know yeah I totally think doable just the presumption that like i am as good as this person that has dedicated their life to this thing <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> is like pretty disrespectful <laughs> you know yeah it can be painful
0: and that's a good note to end this on <laughs> <laughs> um so where can people find you two on the internet
1: uh it's I'm mostly just my name at, at all things but my name is spelled uh in a confusing way. <laughs> so I'm at A-S-H-L-Y underscore B-U-R-C-H on Twitter. And then I think everywhere else, like my website is ashleybirch.com. My Instagram is ashleybirch. Um, oh, uh, I'm in a cartoon called OKKO: okay, Let's Be Heroes. That's out on Cartoon Network now. Oh, uh, cool.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. And then the DLC for Horizon is coming out. So yes, keep your I can't
0: wait. Yeah. <laughs> it looks really good. <laughs> What about you, Kate?
2: You can find me on Twitter at uh, Kate D. That's K-E-I-G-H-T-D-E-E. That's my handle basically everywhere. So, you know, if you want to find me on PlayStation Network and play Overwatch with me, (laughs) that's how you do it.
0: (laughs) And you can find this podcast on Twitter at scriptlockcast. And with that, thank you two for coming on again.
1: Thanks for having me. Thank you.